Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which entertainer Jeremy Hardy meanders purposefully through the shifting sands of time's onward march. This week, How to Be a Father, Part One. Good evening. I must start tonight with an apology. Last week's programme gave the impression that the world was being taken over by invaders from Mars. I should point out that this was a lie intended to cause mass panic, and we hope it didn't inconvenience you too much. But on with tonight's broadcast. I am joined, as usual, by my two glamorous assistants, Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Hello. Now, Debbie, I believe you've got some very exciting news. Yes, I've been chosen to play the legendary country singer Patsy Cline in a musical about the life of Jimi Hendrix. Well, I know all the listeners will join me in offering you our warmest congratulations. Now, Gordon, tonight's broadcast is entitled How to Be a Father, and I believe that's very pertinent to you at the moment. Yes, it is, Jeremy, because I've got a father. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and all the best for the future. We also have a special guest with us tonight, the well-known psychiatrist and TV and radio personality, Dr. Anthony Sligo. Dr. Welcome. How are you? Listeners will know Dr. Sligo from his radio programme, Our Famous People Loopy. <laughs> And may also have seen him host the TV game show, Wheel of Despair. Now, tonight's lecture. Breaking with our usual format, this lecture, How to Be a Father, is extended over two programmes because it is in two parts, the first part and the second part. In a second, the first part, next week, the second, which is a first for the programme. In that broadcast, I shall be discussing the practicalities of childcare with hands-on advice for childminders and policemen. <laughs> But this week, I shall examine the theory and history of fatherhood. I shall be asking the question, why does a man want to become a father? And answering it, because I said so, that's why. <laughs> but why does a man want a child? Is it to perpetuate the species? Is it to prove that he has had sex at least once? Or is the child a pet substitute? <laughs> Dr. Anthony Sligo. Some scientists believe that man is genetically programmed to procreate and that that instinct combines with their almost limitless supply of ejaculate to produce a strong motivation to breed, and that this is the biological justification for men being filthy swine. <laughs> An instinctive drive to reproduce would also explain men's lackadaisical attitude to birth control, but do men have such an imperative, and if they do, is it instinctive? And if so, are they different from women in this respect? And if they are, how and what do we mean by how? <laughs> Well, the American social anthropologist Myra Belsinger, in her book Reproductivity and Care-Orientated Motherness in a Patriarchal Oligarchy, says... Women feel a biological, social, peer group and folkloric pressure to bear and nurture children, whereas men are just bastards. <laughs> yes, uh, thanks for reading that, Debbie. Oh, that's my job. Ah, but you, you do it very well, thanks though. A lot, thanks. Yeah, all right, come on, come on. Um, uh, sorry, whereas on the other hand, the conservative sociobiologist Dr. Will Slinger of the Department of Men's Stuff at the University of Dixie <laughs> believes in the profound genetic difference between the men and the women. Different sections of the brain deal with different physical imperatives. The male brain is made up of the following sections. Reproduction, defense of the territory, DIY, <laughs> sport, supervising barbecues, general <laughs> important stuff, Hanging out with the guys, having a few beers, just out, that's all. And Jesus Christ, can a guy have a life of his own without being interrogated? The female brain, on the other hand, has three sections. Child rearing, getting ready, and absent-mindedness. Oh, yeah. Your man Gordy's very good too, isn't he, huh? Very good. 
But if men do have an innate will to, as it were, make babies, why aren't they even more keen to, as it were, hide the sausage? Man's sex drive is believed to be sublimated by other activities. Belsinger, in her book, Is the Erection an Extension of the Penis, argues, for example... argues, for example, that aggressive driving is a typically male displacement activity. The automobile, she writes, is merely a substitute phallus. But if this was so, you wouldn't drive too fast. You'd just back in and out of the carriage. <laughs> or maybe just polish the car a little. <laughs> but does man's appetite for sex betray a more profound subconscious urge to father children or are men just dirty. And what if gay men? The lack of desire to have sex with women doesn't necessarily mean that a man doesn't want to be a father. Many gay men would like to be able to adopt, but cannot fulfill the criterion of being a recently castrated married consultant paediatrician and qualified social worker. <laughs> Society tends to feel that homosexuality, unless rigorously disguised by ordination into the priesthood or a place in the cabinet, will be a bad influence on a child. Presumably, the fear is that gay parents make gay children. There is no evidence, however, to suggest that sexual preference is learned from parents. If one is heterosexual, it's not because one's parents are heterosexual. To a child, heterosexuality seems to be something not to do with sex, but to do with arguing and shopping. <laughs> and if, for example, a man had two gay dads, the main difference would be that there was less arguing and more shopping. <laughs> event, there would seem to be a paternal instinct even when there is no search for a female partner. There seems to be a time for many men when the restless stirrings of youth give way to a deeper yearning. Why is this, Dr. Sligo? Well, a man wants a new person in his life. A person to whom he can say, one day all this will be yours. And, well, son, it's like this. And, I don't know, go and ask your mother. <laughs> a man who has no children can feel a failure, especially if he's lost them somewhere. To whom will he explain the difference between right and wrong? Who will show him how the microwave works? And who will he christen after the Ireland team? Belsinger argues that all this is simply a desire to impress. What's your view? Well, a woman who has given birth is regarded as having done what her body was designed for. But the man who impregnated her is held to achieve something. Of course, if the man were to give birth himself, there would be cause for such adulation. But the penis is impossibly designed for the delivery of her seven or eight pound baby. <laughs> So is the vagina. Yeah, OK, Deb. <laughs> of course, part of the reason why a father has greater status than a mother is that as the head of a traditional family, a man was admired by his peers for his ability to raise several healthy children without ever actually seeing them. This is still the case with the higher social classes. It is often observed that the socially deprived are less likely than the wealthy to abuse their children. This is because the wealthy send their children away to be abused by professionals. <laughs> On the other hand, there can be peer group pressure not to become a family man. Clichés abound to the effect that men who've become fathers are no fun anymore, never go out, are boring, show photographs all the time, look ill and smell funny. That's all true. Is it? Jesus, look at yourself. What? Well, there's vomit in your turnips. That's mine. <laughs> He's right, though, Jeremy. I mean, look at you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to say anything, but, you know, you've really let yourself go. Your daughter's four now. Don't you think you should have started to get your figure back? <laughs> and it's obvious he only has a one child. After eight or nine, you just get on with it. If I could just sum up your view, Doctor. No, he's getting upset now. Does a man seek fatherhood as an affirmation of his masculinity? Is it a way of establishing to his society that he is a man? No. 
If he wants to do that, he can show people his genitals. All right, well... <laughs> thank you, Doctor. So what does the child, as distinct from the fact of the child, represent, and when, and which? Do men think that they own their offspring in the way that they might own a dog? If so, why don't they let their children defecate outside other people's homes? <laughs> What's more, one can hardly imagine an obedient child being trained to run to the newsagent and come back with the paper in her mouth. It's much more likely to be cigarettes. But prospective mothers should hear alarm bells if their partner's favourite girl's name is Lady and boy's name is Lucky. For further discussion of this area, I suggest the book Men Who Throw Sticks for Their Children by Dr. Anthony Sligo. Ah, uh, so, man, fair play to you. You know the arrangement. Of course, children bear no resemblance to dogs, other than the fact that they destroy everything, take over your life, bite and pretend to be deaf when they've got their backs to you. <laughs> and we do seem to spend a great deal of time yelling at children, ordering them about and getting a vicarious thrill from their attacks on other people. So does fatherhood represent real as well as symbolic power? Is a child just someone else to push around? If so, fathers should bear in mind who it is who will be selecting sheltered accommodation for them when their own bladder control starts to go haywire. <laughs> in earlier centuries, children had greater economic significance. They were part of the workforce. In some areas of the world, children still labour for little or no reward in tough and dangerous conditions with no legal protection. We shall talk more about youth training later on. <laughs> Perhaps the one thing that all men seek from a child is a renewal of our own lives. Perhaps we all want a little replica of ourselves, and a baby is a faster route to this than becoming a major historical figure in order to be included in the ethics range. <laughs> and is it a bad thing to want to create a new person who looks a bit like you? Well, that depends on what you look like. <laughs> Phil Collins would be best left as a one-off. <laughs> However, to see some slight reflection of yourself in the face of an infant can be warmly reassuring, especially if you're not entirely convinced that you're the child's father. <laughs> but what a man seeks from a child is not so much a copy of himself, but a continuation of his existence. We want to be immortal. We want to know that even after we are gone, there'll still be a little piece of us somewhere on the earth who hates our guts. <laughs> Anthony Sligo, have you anything to add on the subject of why men want to be fathers? Only to recommend the book, When Did You Last See Your Father, by Jeremy Hardy, published by Methuen and priced at 5 99 Thank you. It's shite, though, I've read it. <laughs> now, perhaps, we should look at the history of fatherhood and see how it has changed over the centuries. The first recorded father was, of course, our heavenly father, God. God is also the father of Jesus, who was the son of Mary, who, rather confusingly, is the mother of God. There are divergent theological explanations for all this. <laughs> The most popular interpretation is that God and Jesus, as well as being father and son, are the same person, which is how we know that God has long hair and a beard. <laughs> Jesus is God and God is Jesus. After all, we never see them in the same room. Except, <laughs> except after the ascension, when according to Mark chapter 16, verse 19, After the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The expression, sat on the right hand of God, seems peculiar to us today and conjures up a rather bizarre image. But the meaning is made clearer by the contemporary language of the 1983 modern revised contemporary newish English Bible-type book. <laughs> the phrase becomes, Jesus was a glove puppet. <laughs> there is now considerable... There is now considerable archaeological evidence to suggest that God made a puppet which came to life. This interpretation would seem to support claims that the New Testament story is a version of a much earlier pagan myth, that of Pinocchio. <laughs> Indeed, if one counts the letters in God's name and adds the number of Gospels, the total is seven, almost the same number of letters as in Geppetto, Pinocchio's father. 
Much of the problem with understanding the Bible is making sense of the language. For example, the begetting, which takes place in the Old Testament, is preceded by men knowing their wives. Knowing means sex. This gives a whole new connotation to the phrase nodding acquaintance. <laughs> with these basic analytical tools at our disposal, let's start at the beginning. God creates Adam, fully grown up. This cuts out any real parenting by God, and it is really Adam who is the first father. Eve bears him two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel and is banished, although I should point out that banishment is not the way to deal with sibling rivalry. <laughs> These events leave Adam and Eve effectively childless. By the time Eve conceives their third child, Seth, they are 130 years old. <laughs> Late pregnancies like this are very common in the Old Testament and should give encouragement to older couples. It's important, however, that both parents are in very good health. Genesis 5.26 tells us, And the Lord said unto Adam, Be careful not to bend as you collapse the buggy. <laughs> But perhaps the best-known father-son relationship in the Old Testament is that of Abraham and Isaac. One day, Abraham is in the Middle East doing general biblical things. He's now several hundred years old, and so is probably complaining to some stranger that every face in the post office is black nowadays. <laughs> including his. God speaks to Abraham. Let's listen to a dramatic reconstruction of the events as they actually happened. For the purposes of winding up bigots, God will be played by Debbie Isaac. And because we're short-handed, Dr. Anthony Sligo will play the Angel of the Lord. Oh, I always play the Angel. Why can't I be Joseph? Joseph's not in this bit. Well, can I not be the baby Jesus? No! <laughs> Carry on, God, please. Abraham, are you doing anything at the moment? Nothing special, why? Well, it's about your son, Isaac. Oh, he's not in any trouble, is he? No, no, nothing like that. It's just that I want you to take him up to the top of a mountain, stab him to death, and burn him as a sacrifice to me. Oh. Well, you don't sound very pleased. <laughs> don't you want to? Oh, it's not that. It's just I promised to take him to the football this afternoon. All right, well, tomorrow then. Okay, thanks, God. So bright and early next morning, Abraham sets off with Isaac and a load of firewood to the land of Moriah, where God shows him the mountain he has chosen. They climb. Isaac is curious. Got it, Dad. That's a lot of kindling. What are we sacrificing? Oh, just a few sausages, a couple of chops. <laughs> oh, why are you tying me to this altar? Is it a game? Yes, that's right, Isaac, a game. Keep still, there's a good lad. Now, you might feel a violent stabbing sensation. <laughs> At this moment, the angel of the Lord calls to him. Oi, Abraham, what the hell are you doing? I'm, I'm killing him, aren't I? It was God's idea, not mine. Abraham, it was a test, a test of faith. You shouldn't take God so literally all the time. He doesn't really want you to kill the nipper. He's not a total bastard. So Abraham doesn't kill Isaac. Instead, he sacrifices a ram, which has miraculously appeared in a thicket. This is all very well for him, but what about Isaac? Abraham had reconciled himself to the idea of a dead son. He's now got a son who's completely alive and knows that Dad is quite prepared to murder him in cold blood when asked to do so. One would imagine quite a frosty atmosphere as the two prepare to go all the way down a mountain together. Oh, <laughs> come on now, son. Your mum will be getting worried. I bet she bloody is. <laughs> How much, then, does our Heavenly Father love us? Leaping ahead to the New Testament, it seems that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Let us pause to think about that. God loved the world so much, 
he didn't come himself, he sent his little boy. <laughs> Maybe for an Oscar nomination, he'd show up in person, but for the salvation of humankind, he delegates. <laughs> and what of his relationship with Jesus? If Abraham's concept of parental responsibility seems lacking, God's was a disaster. It is one thing for a man not to be present at the birth of his child, but to be absent from the conception was unforgivable. <laughs> it's left to the angel Gabriel to deliver the tidings to the Virgin Mary. If a woman opts for artificial insemination by donor, she accepts that to some extent she's taking potluck. But to be told by a Christmas tree decoration that one will shortly be up the stick courtesy of a third party is something of a bombshell. <laughs> And how one wonders, is Mary supposed to break the news to Joseph, a devoted husband with a successful carpentry business and a normal sperm count? <laughs> In my opinion, Christian worshippers pay scant regard to the man who brought God's son up as his own. He is constantly marginalised by the adoration of the Blessed Virgin. On the other hand, she does deliver a baby with a circle of wire poking out of the back of his head. <laughs> and there were no epidurals in those days. <laughs> anyway... Assuming, as the Christian faith does, that God intends his son to be the Messiah, he sends him into the world with a number of disadvantages. Firstly, of all the names he could have picked, God picks an expletive. <laughs> Jesus' role on earth was to save humanity by getting us to repent for our sins. This we signally failed to do. So Jesus was punished for all the sins of all of humankind everywhere in history ever. Which seems a bit harsh. <laughs> It's an extreme way for God to prove he doesn't believe in nepotism. One <laughs> is left asking why, when Jesus is most in need of a miracle, does he not use one? It may be that it's hard to do a miracle when one is tense. It's probably got a lot to do with breathing, although I'm guessing at this point. <laughs> or perhaps he was just tired of doing miracles, always being expected to knock one off at the drop of a hat. I expect that if Mary and Joseph were aware of his abilities when he was younger, the precocious Jesus often found himself the focus of unwanted attention at family gatherings. Come on, Jesus. Do one of them miracles for the guests. All right, Dad. It's on one, eh? Oh, come along. Auntie Ruth hasn't seen your water into wine. All right, can I go to the temple? No, you can't go to the temple. You're not my real dad. God's my real dad. Right. Upstairs, you and tidy your room. It's full of lepers. <laughs> the real reason Jesus puts up so little resistance in the face of the Romans is probably his faith in his natural father, God. He simply can't believe that the old man would let him down quite so spectacularly badly. So how does a father become so remote from his child? Dr. Anthony Sligo. What? We're talking about God. Oh, oh, Jackie. Ah, yeah, he's done a brilliant job on the team, yeah. There's no problem in the midfield. He just needs to find someone to score goals. All right, well, well, let's leave the Holy Land and look at the history of fatherhood in this country. The institution of fatherhood in Britain has undergone a transformation in the 20th century. In 1900, the only parenting a man did was to stand with his back to a fireplace saying, so you want to marry my daughter. <laughs> Even if he only had sons. <laughs> but today, you can walk around any shop that sells cheap posters and you will see several featuring muscle-bound male models in tender poses with young infants. I should stress that these rippling Adonises are not the fathers of the children. No one with a new baby has the energy to pump iron for two hours a day. And if they were dads, they'd know that if you hold a naked baby up in front of you, it'll weigh in your face. <laughs> There's some photo shoots that were cut rather short. <laughs> so what happened to create this new active role for fathers in the 20th century? Historically, the nuclear family is a quite recent phenomenon. In pre-industrial Britain, most of the population lived quite communally. 
Luckily, they were also illiterate and so couldn't leave terse notes to each other about whose turn it was to buy toilet paper. <laughs> Fathers and mothers both worked the land and it was left to grandparents to stitch the children into hessian sacks and bury them in clay pits until they were 14. <laughs> the start of the Industrial Revolution was signalled by the discovery of penicillin by spinning Jenny, the inventor of steam. Progressively, the largely rural population was driven off the land by rambling societies and began to settle in new towns like Harlow and Welling Garden City. <laughs> From this time on, children didn't need to be babysat because they had jobs. <laughs> of course, the wealthy father did not need to put his children to work, but neither did he spend much quality time with them. He would employ a wicked governess to scare the children and their frail, sickly mother who would die of embroidery at the age of 30. <laughs> The father would go on to have various illegitimate children by a succession of scullery maids, each of whom he would cast out in turn. Shunned and shamed, his former servants would die of melodrama in a rude shack. But one of the children would survive and run away to sea to work his passage on the coffin ships to Belgium. Years later, he would return to his father's estate to claim his rightful share of the inheritance, but would have to fight a duel on Salisbury Plain with his cruel half-brother, Brot who would cheat and fire before he had taken ten paces, thus accidentally shooting himself in the head. <laughs> Meanwhile, their father had died in the madhouse for tax reasons and left no will. But a kindly old gentleman recognised our hero, who was about to hang mistakenly for the shooting of his half-brother, as the bastard son and rightful heir to the old squire's estate. But by now a car park had been built on it, so they hanged him anyway. <laughs> All this changed with the First World War. A profound social shift occurred as women were drawn into heavy industry by the need for munitions. The war also altered once and for all the attitudes of men to their roles as fathers because they were all killed. <laughs> by the time a new generation had become fathers, it was a depression and they were all unemployed, so that was no good either. But at least they were around more and could play with the kids. Then it was the Second World War, then post-war austerity and then the 50s. Riding along in the economic boom of the 50s and early 60s saw dramatic growth in car ownership. All right, that's enough. <laughs> the motor car caused a huge change in the paternal role. One Sunday a month, the whole family would rise at six so that father could take them on an outing. By noon, he would have finished packing the hard-boiled eggs into the boot of the Woolsey and would arrange his children inside after weighing and numbering them. <laughs> This was in the days before safety belts and gaps between the front seats, so five or six children could be seated uncomfortably next to their father in the front. Mother would travel in the back and navigate while trying to subdue Grandma, who would be scaring the children with stories of a car accident she witnessed in 1936. <laughs> and how the doctors couldn't tell which bits were the passengers and which bits were the knackers' horse. The children would take it in turns to get stung by wasps, be carsick and wet themselves, but father would refuse to stop until he reached the picnic site. <laughs> a lay-by on a new stretch of dual carriageway. The picnic was eaten in the car to avoid the litter bin full of angry hornets, but the children were allowed out of the car to collect something for the school nature table. Father told them, if you're not back in five minutes, I am leaving without you. He was not serious, but would nonetheless drive off, leaving one child behind. <laughs> By the time the child was retrieved two hours later, he was hysterical and needed to be consoled, so the rest of the day was spent looking for an ice cream van. It was after dark by the time father delivered his brood safely home, tired but unhappy. <laughs> According to popular mythology, the 50s also saw the beginnings of the breakdown of our social framework. Dr. Anthony Sligo, do you think the family is falling apart? I don't know. When did you last see them? 
Christmas. No, hang on. No, I'm not talking about my family. Are you frightened of talking about your family, Jeremy? No. Ah, uh, tell me now, what happened at Christmas? No. It is often noticed that in the predominant white Christian culture, the family has fallen apart, and yet in the Jewish culture, the Hindu culture, and the Muslim culture, the family is still very strong. That's because those cultures don't have Christmas. Ah, you see. Damn! <laughs> Blimey, he knows his stuff, this bloke, doesn't he, Gordon? I know, it's amazing spot. Yeah, all right, cast. Remember who dragged you from the gutter. <laughs> it is now said that most children are out of control because parents and presumably fathers have not been doing enough to control them. Children no longer look up to the local Bobby, worried that if they do look up, he might be able to get a punch in. <laughs> Television is often blamed for the breakdown in discipline. The phrase, wait till your father gets home, no longer has any meaning. Father gets home, puts the telly on and falls asleep. It used to be his role to listen to a catalogue of offences from mother and then take his belt to the children. This is what people mean when they say, we made our own entertainment in the days before television. <laughs> Nowadays, children have to learn about violence from videos. It's true that the 90s have seen some... <coughs> It's true that the 90s have seen some terrifying developments in youth culture. We have witnessed teenagers walking around in flares and platforms. <laughs> Only because they're too young to have been emotionally scarred by them the first time round. <laughs> Those of us who lived through the 1970s never want to see anything like that happen again. <laughs> we have a tendency to forget that children are young and treat them as adults with learning difficulties. <laughs> Because the origins of human unhappiness are believed to be in our early childhood, parents seem to want to get children through their childhood as quickly as possible. These days, when new parents buy mobiles from Mothercare, the choice is between Cellnet and Vodafone. <laughs> children are taken to gymnasia. Toddlers taught to use Apple Macs. If you wire your fax to your microwave, you can bring your child up from the office. <laughs> Maybe it's old-fashioned to think that men should give up work when their children are born. But if it's old-fashioned to think that work is a grueling, carcinogenic chain gang leading to alienation, dyspepsia and the grave, then you can call me old-fashioned. Yeah, he's guilty about being a working dad. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Mm, could be, yeah. <laughs> But there are hopes for a more positive, more active kind of fatherhood. Perhaps our shared sense of guilt... Guys, uh, yeah, our shared sense of guilt about handing over to our children a world which is such a terrible Kazi might encourage us all to do what we can to make up for it. And ideas about parenting go around in cycles. Perhaps we're not as modern as we think. Perhaps man is satisfying an ancient hunter-gatherer instinct when he stalks and brings down a pack of nappies with his bare hands. <laughs> Maybe marking a child's height on the wall brings out the cave painter in us. And how much of the joy of being the one to push the buggy is the damage we can do to other people's ankles. <laughs> Perhaps fathers are, after all, fundamentally different from mothers. Then again, that stuff's all bollocks. Jeremy. What? I notice that you use the word bollocks to mean nonsense or rubbish. Do you think that you harbour negative feelings towards your own testicles? Um, I don't want to go into that now. Ah, you see? You really have got doubts about your self-worth, haven't you? Uh, can I try something? What? Well, have a look at these ink blots. What? Now, what does this remind you of? Nothing. Oh, look, look, it's the nativity. And there's the virgin, and there's the babby, and there's Joseph. See, he looks like me. And uh, look, there's some of the sheep, you see, and that, look. What's that bit? Uh, that's a wise man, you see, he's got a bit of a smudge there, you see. <laughs> now, now, let me try something else. I say a word, and you say the first thing that comes into your mind. All right, so long as we're agreed that it's of no diagnostic value at all. Agreed. Consented. Uh, uh, now, hang on, hang on now. Uh, wait, now, I'll start. <laughs> right. Are you ready now? Here we go. 
Love, hate, death, dirt, dirt, dustbuster, mother, breasts, father, civil servant, child, McDonald's, food, barely, nakedly, hurley, actress, barely, breasts, um, over to Gordon for a bonus point. Is it mother? Correct. What complex refers to a Greek king's marriage to... Oedipus. Correct. Who said all women become like their mothers? That is their tragedy. No men do. That is theirs. Bernard Shaw. No. Jeremy? Oscar Wilde. Yes. For an extra point, Gordon, what do you say, Simon, the delight of... Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by and starred Don and Sheila's boy and also starred Debbie Isaac, Gordon Kennedy and Ben Keaton as Dr. Anthony Sligo. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC. If you'd like any details of any of the holiday resorts in tonight's programme, write to Judith Chalmers. Care of nice work if you can get it. Easy Street, Bermuda. (laughs) 